0: Now welcome back to uh, the Centerpoint School of Theology and uh, we are this semester looking at uh, the work of Christ. We're trying to find categories by which to uh, understand uh, all that Christ has done uh, on behalf of his people and uh, thus far we have been thinking in terms of some fairly general Uh, points of view, points of view uh, like obedience, that Jesus came to obey uh, all of the demands of the law, that he came to fulfill the covenant of works, that his entire life, from beginning to end, from birth to death, was an act of obedience. We've looked at the work of Christ from the point of view of sacrifice, uh, that his death was sacrificial. And tonight I want us to think in terms of a more uh, particular uh, uh, truth, a more particular point of view, and that is from the point of view of substitution, or uh, that that the the death of Christ, that the life and death of Christ, the work of Christ was vicarious, Uh, the word vicar. Uh, in uh, Latin, uh, is a term that means a substitute, so when, when you hear the term vicar, uh, technically it's, it's a substitute, it is a, it is a, uh, a priestly term. Uh, we're thinking tonight then of uh, the work of Christ as an act of substitution. Well, let's pick up a text, an epitomizing text here from Galatians 2.20, uh, Christ uh, loved, uh, forgive the typo. Christ loved me, and gave Himself for me. Uh, those of you who can read the Greek text, uh, the preposition "huper." Uh, there are two of these prepositions uh, that we find in the New Testament. One is the preposition "anti," uh, and the other is "huper." Both, both uh, translated typically in English by the preposition for Christ loved me and gave himself for me and of course we uh, need to ask ourselves the question what is the word for uh, there for what, what does it mean what does for me mean he died for me and uh, various answers uh, a kind of building Block approach here. All of these answers are true. Uh, let's begin with something, uh, something general, generic, something, something uh, without a uh, particular focus to it. Uh, that Christ died for me in the sense of that he died, uh, that he, that he, uh, that his work was he gave himself uh, along with me uh, in the sense that he. Well, we might use, we might use a, 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 an expression like, I feel your pain, uh, if I can quote that phrase. Uh, it's one that's uh, f- fairly uh, common. Uh, the idea of solidarity. Uh, I'm here for you. Uh, I feel with you. I, I suffer with you. You're not alone. Uh, there's someone in this uh, suffering, there's someone in this uh, scenario, there's someone in this uh, set of circumstances that uh, understands, that's, that's, that's been where, where you are and uh, uh, is offering uh, compassion and, uh, and, and sensitivity. I'm, uh, that Christ suffered along with us. We suffer, but Jesus has suffered too. He, he knows what it is. And that's true. Uh, That's inadequate, but it's true. Uh, Jesus uh, took a human body, he had a human mind, a human soul, human affections, uh, human psychology, a human will. Uh, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's an enormously important pastoral truth, one that uh, Hebrews 4 uh, refers to. Uh, when you feel uh, alone in your suffering, uh, when, when it hurts so much, and you wonder, does anybody understand? And you may throw up your hands in the air and say, no one understands. No, no one's been where I, where I am. And, of course, that's not true. Uh, Jesus has been there. So there's a, a, a generic sense here, Christ loved me and he gave himself for me in a in a in a in the sense of solidarity he he knows he knows my suffering well let's take it uh, a notch uh, further not just solidarity but representation uh, he gave himself for me as my representative Uh, We understand that, of course, from a legal point of view. We we need somebody to represent us in a court of law, so we hire a lawyer to represent us. He'll present the best possible case for us. He'll defend us. He'll marshal all of the necessary arguments uh, for me. And I trust him. I, I may just sit there. and and take no part in the trial except except put on a suit and and sit in the court of law, but I'll I'll hand it over to my representative. Uh, We live in a a country where we have representative government uh, of, uh, of one kind or another. Uh, at, uh, at the city level, at the state level, at the, at the federal level, we have representative government. We sometimes enter into a debate as to whether, say, somebody who represents us politically should represent my personal point of view, or whether we elect that person to represent his point we trust him to represent his point of view. And that debate takes place all the time. But we, we understand the idea, the concept of representation. Somebody Somebody, somebody does something, argues something for me. So there's uh, the idea of solidarity. There's the idea of representation. But but let's take it, let's take it to another level altogether. And that's the level of substitution. Uh, he gave himself for me in the sense of substitution. That's more than representation. It it builds upon the idea of representation. It requires an understanding of solidarity. But it's more than that. He He not only represents me legally and represents me well because of his solidarity with me. He's been where I've been, so he understands my predicament, my case but he also takes the consequences for me now no lawyer is prepared to go to prison on behalf of a, of a client well that may sometimes be true but, but, but probably because, because he's been put in prison for some other reason rather than, than he wants to take the punishment that his, that his client deserves now let's, uh, let's, let's explore this uh, um, a little uh, let, me, let me remind you of an old-fashioned word. It's not, it's not a word in much use, current use today, but you will certainly uh, read it in, in older literature, and uh, it's a word that's, that's in the Confession of Faith, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith in uh, Chapter 8 uh, on the Mediator in, in Section uh, 3. Uh, the word surety, uh, it's a word that uh, sometimes gets implied in liturgy, so uh, prayers, especially liturgical prayers of a former period, uh, and those who are wont to say liturgical prayers from a former period with these and those and so on, uh, and uh, the word surety will sometimes emerge. Uh, what does surety mean? And surety means uh, the idea of substitution. So let's, uh, let's look for a minute here at a, a, a typical statement uh, and it's uh, from a Reformed perspective here, the Westminster Confession three, uh, The Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety. And surety. Which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to the word surety. Now this idea of substitution... That Jesus substituted himself uh, for me. He, 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 he suffered, he died uh, in my room instead, bore the consequences that, that my sins deserved. The idea of substitution. Uh, we've just sung it in this, uh, in this hymn together. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall or without a city wall. Where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all We may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear But we believe it was for us There it is What does for us mean in that hymn? And of course, uh, in that hymn, uh, knowing uh, that Cecil Cecil Francis Alexander wrote that hymn uh, What what is meant by for us there is, is the idea of substitution now it's hotly disputed uh, today. Uh, let me give you uh, let me give you one quotation here. Hold on to your breeches. Uh, this is Joel Green and Mark Baker. Uh, this is from uh, a book published by Intervasti Press. Uh, so what would purport to be a very conservative uh, evangelical. Uh, Pub- publication, and these are well-known names. Uh, uh, they've written many textbooks that uh, those of us who teach at the seminary will will often employ, particularly in the areas of New Testament uh, New Testament uh, theology and so on. Joel Green and Mark and Mark uh, Baker. Uh, here's the quotation: uh, God takes the role of the sadist, while Jesus is. While Jesus takes the role of a masochist, um, ready to embrace and readily embraces suffering. God, the Father, takes the role of the sadist. Jesus takes the role of the masochist. Uh, This is is their understanding of the traditional doctrine of substitution. That's that's the implication uh, of the traditional doctrine of substitution. And that from... Uh, what what, uh, erstwhile has been a a conservative uh, Bible-believing publication. So this isn't some weird, wacky liberal out there. This is is fellow evangelicals, fellow conservatives of sorts uh, criticizing what has been a central central tenet of uh, uh, a conservative understanding of the work of Christ as as a work of substitution. Now, what is the evidence for substitution? And the evidence for substitution begins on what we were thinking about two weeks ago, and that is uh, that the nature of, of Christ's work is described in the New Testament as a sacrifice. Uh, and we could spend uh, a, a good deal of time looking at uh, the nature of sacrifices. What was the place, what was the function of sacrifices under the Old Testament? When, when, uh, when a believer went uh, to the temple, offered uh, a lamb, put, its, put his hands on the head of the lamb, confessed sins, that lamb's throat was, was, was cut, it, it bled and died... And uh, uh, a pronouncement was made by the priest uh, that the believer's sins were forgiven. Uh, That essentially was part of the ritual of sacrifice under the Old Covenant. It came in many different shapes and forms, and and perhaps the central aspect of sacrifice under the Old Testament involved the burning, the Holocaust, the burnt offering, where the offering was burnt entirely. Uh, was consumed by fire as a visual demonstration, not just of its death, but, but of something much more than that, as, as something that required required to be burnt and destroyed. Um, the idea of substitution emerges out of out of the very concept that the death of Jesus is is a sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But let's look uh, let's look at some t- texts in the New Testament uh, uh, that imply. Uh, these prepositions, uh, huper and "anti" uh, that are translated in English as he died for, for me. Uh, let's take Mark 10:45. It's probably one of the half dozen or so most important texts in the New Testament. Uh, this is Jesus' own um, statement as to the nature of his uh, coming, as to why he came, as to the nature of his work. Uh, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a Lutron, a a ransom for, uh, in this case the preposition is anti, for me. He gave himself as a ransom for me. Now, what is the ransom? Uh, this is language, of course, taken straight out of the Old Testament. Jesus is, is identifying the nature of his ministry, the nature of his work, purpose of his coming, as fulfilling that which had been signaled by a ransom in the Old Testament. Now, the basic idea of ransom in the Old Testament uh, is the Hebrew word kipper, which is uh, used, uh, first of all, in Genesis 6 of the covering, the pitch. Uh, that was used to cover the ark. It covered the ark. So the, the idea of a ransom has behind it the idea of a of a covering. Uh, we probably still use the idea, the concept of, of of something that covers the debt. It it obscures it. It hides the debt from view. And that's 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 basically the idea of a of a ransom. A, uh, a price was paid to 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 cover the debt, whether that was for uh, uh, slavery or whatever whatever it was. Uh, the the ransom price was was paid. So here's here's Jesus saying, uh, "The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life." A ransom to cover the debt. For many. Uh, the many, the four, the many here is an allusion to the servant song, the fourth servant song in Isaiah fifty three. Uh, four. He pays the debt, he covers the debt, he pays the ransom price so that we need not pay the ransom price, so that the debt is covered. I still remember uh, paper receipts uh, from the local store. You know, I lived in a village uh, and uh, there was one store, a general store, uh, where you got almost uh, anything and if it wasn't there, they, they would order it and they would get it for you and uh, you would put it on the, on the you know, the, whatever the word was, the, the, the bill, the tab, whatever it was, and then every, uh, every month or so, uh, I remember seeing these uh, little things and s- my mother usually would go into the store and, uh, and, and pay off this, uh, this, this tab and then uh, the piece of paper would be handed and scribbled on it uh, in, in handwriting was paid in full. What does paid in full mean? Could, could the shopkeeper come around the next day and say, no, you still owe me money? No, you just show this, this piece of paper saying the, 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 the bill has been paid in full. The debt's been covered. The debt's been covered so that it doesn't need to be paid again a second time or a third time or a fourth time. It's gone. It's been eradicated. It can't be seen anymore. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. Uh, for our sake. Uh, here's the preposition again, who pair? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, now let's think of the logic of that statement. Jesus became sin. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. Right? There are two, two sins in that sentence. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. The first sin must, must mean the same as the second use of the word sin. He was, he was without sin, he was sinless, but he was reckoned to be sin. In other words, he was reckoned to be a sinner, so that we might be reckoned to be righteous, the, the righteousness of God. He was sinless, he was reckoned to be a sinner, so that we might be reckoned to be sinless. To follow the logic of Paul, it's a, it's a very clear logic. Now, there is no theory of the atonement that makes sense of Second Corinthians five twenty one apart from substitution. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, why is Jesus reckoned to be sin when he is sinless? Uh, Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself and here it is again gave himself for me pair uh, again I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I, I live, but it's not, it's not me, it's Christ living in me. I, I live now by the consequences of something that Christ has done for me. By nature I'm dead in trespasses and in sins, but now I'm alive. I'm alive because Jesus, Jesus has done something for me, in my place. In my room, in my stead, uh, Galatians three, uh, Galatians three, uh, thirteen. Christ uh, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged uh, on a tree." Now here is Paul speaking of the death of Christ. He's speaking of the work of Christ. And he's speaking of it in terms of a category that, how do we understand the cross? How do we understand what happens to Jesus? And Paul understands it in this way, that he becomes a curse. He is sinless, he is perfect, he is the son of God, but he he becomes a curse. So that God curses him. We are the ones who deserve the curse. We are the lawbreakers. We are the transgressors. The wages of sin is death. It is is upon us that that curse should fall. But it falls on him. Instead of falling on us, it falls on him. And the concept here is the concept of substitution. He takes what we deserve... Uh, one of the one of the most momentous uh, points of a of a service of worship uh, is the benediction. Uh, I've I've, uh, I've loved it when we've heard uh, new forms of the benediction from uh, Dr. Davis, employing uh, in particular some of the uh, uh, verses from the Psalms. But you understand, uh, and, I'm, and I'm with you, and I'm as, I'm as excited when I hear some of these new forms of the benediction too. But remember, when you hear a benediction that's very familiar to you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, those are very familiar words. But you understand that it cost Jesus his very life for us to be recipients of those gracious words. God made him to be a curse so that we might hear words of peace and grace and and benediction. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God smiles on us. God gives us shalom, fullness, integrity, wholesomeness, life in its fullness because he gave his son the curse. Because he frowned upon his son and cast him away and gave him hell so that we might receive the peace. It's substitution. He got what we deserve. We get what was his. Uh, Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There it is again, huper, for us. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Uh, there's the preposition again, Hooper f- for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, uh, let's, let's be absolutely clear, um, and we need to be clear on this issue of substitution. If Christ wasn't our substitute, then we must bear the consequences for our own sins. I mean, the objection, the objection is raised about substitution, that it's unjust, unfair, that it's a form of of, of God uh, being a sadist and Jesus being a masochist, that it's some form of cosmic child abuse. That it's inherently a, a violent uh, picture of God. That's the objection that's raised to substitution. Well, okay, let's, let's, let's take that objection on board for a minute. So it is impossible for someone else to bear the consequences of our sins. So so where are we? If someone else cannot cannot take the consequences for our sins, we must we must bear the consequences ourselves. You 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 follow that logic. If we must bear the consequences ourselves, If we still uphold a biblical view of God, if we still uphold a biblical view of of God's justice, if we still uphold a biblical view of God's integrity, then there is no possibility of salvation. Because we cannot atone for our own sins. Right. If substitution is impossible, the only way that you can get salvation is to somehow modify the nature and character of God. God is going to hoodwink. God is, God is going to look the other way. God isn't as holy as you make him out to be. You, you, you see, if you deny substitution, a lot of other things are going to come tumbling down in order for you to get salvation at the end of it. The character of God is going to have to change. Now, you, you, you hear me saying at the beginning, the, the, the folks, the folks who, are, who are most loudly objecting to the doctrine of substitution today are evangelicals. But there is a consequence to objecting to substitution. Because it's not just substitution that you're going to object to. If you're going to get salvation at the end of it. If you're saying substitution is somehow inherently unjust. Because no one can take the consequences of my sin except me. Then unless you modify the character of God, salvation is impossible. What I'm saying is, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, those who are denying substitution will also deny the character of God. But the character of God, you cannot cannot uphold the biblical view of the holiness of God And deny substitution and still have salvation at the end of it. So without substitution, the death of Christ is unintelligible. Because as I think I might have said before, I mean I say it often enough so I don't remember where I've said it now, but I must have said it here at some point in uh, in the last few weeks. The greatest and most fundamental question that you can ever ask yourself is why did the wrath of God alight here on his son? Why was Jesus made a curse for us? You see, Paul is saying that Jesus didn't die just to show us how to die a good death. You know, it's like, it's like a view of the atonement that says that Jesus wants us to see how, how how noble a death can be so so he he gets crucified. It's like somebody throwing themselves off a cliff and saying, I love you and, and this is how you're to live. It doesn't make any sense. If Jesus is sinless, he's he's absolutely sinless. He's never committed one transgression. Why does the wrath of God alight here? Now you've only got two choices here. Uh, m- maybe three. I, I mean one, one is a stark and scary thought that the world is unjust. Uh, God is unjust. He's, he's just like the Greek gods, given to fitful rages, without any explanation whatsoever. Mm, that's not very comforting. Uh, you can you can adopt a view that the Bible Bible's portrayal of God is wrong, or you can say that at the point. When the wrath of God descends upon his Son, it was the right thing. It was the proper thing. It was the only thing God could do. The wrath of God is the reflex of his holiness. And that holiness can only can only manifest itself in the presence of sin. At the point at which the wrath of God came down upon his son, it was the right thing, it was the just thing to do. Because at that point, he had been made sin for us. Now you can only get there by substitution. Some some liberal view of the cross isn't going to get there. You're you're either going to say God is unjust, or you're going to have to modify the doctrine of God. But if you're going to uphold a biblical doctrine of the character of God, only substitution makes sense of the cross. Otherwise, at the midpoint of history, there is one of the greatest acts of injustices, of injustice ever, that God was showing some kind of vindictive. Uh, uh, anger towards his son now what is the nature let's uh, pursue this a little bit more what is the nature of Christ's substitution and uh, we need to see it i think uh, from its eternal perspective uh, way back last year we talked about covenant as a as a, a way of understanding the scriptures as a as a, a, a a hermeneutic a way of understanding the totality of scripture that god god uh, engages uh, in fellowship with us by covenant by entering into successive covenants and that's because god is a covenant making god in his very being uh, so So, before the foundation of the world, we have this idea we have this 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 glimpse in the scriptures in the second psalm, for example of of the Father and the Son in covenant and in in fellowship together, in, in other words, that what is happening to the Son of God on the cross is not something haphazard, but it was something to which the second person of the Trinity had already committed himself. There had been an intra-Trinitarian commitment and agreement that this would be the way in which sinners would be saved. In other words, at the heart of the work of Christ is 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 the voluntary agreement of the Son. This is not something that is happening to him and against his will, uh, but it is something into which he himself voluntarily enters. Uh, you hear him say, even at the point of his death, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. This wasn't, this wasn't, this wasn't something that was being uh, wrenched away from him against, against his will, uh, but it was something into which he, he voluntarily commits himself. Uh, let's, uh, for time considerations here, let's drop down to some of the objections. And uh, I, I haven't listed uh, all of the objections, but let me consider, uh, let me consider four or five of them. one objection goes like this, uh, that penal substitution is not the only model for atonement. Uh, And uh, that's an objection that's raised again and again by, by, uh, and and these are the examples I've raised this evening, uh, Green and Baker, but uh, again and again in in the book that they wrote on on the atonement, uh, which is about 10, 12 years old now. Uh, the constant refrain in the book is um, uh, that that the the Bible has a has a rich tapestry of atonement language, and that's true. We can view the atonement as. Uh, Uh, as uh, an act of obedience. We can view the atonement as an act of sacrifice. We can view the atonement as an act of redemption. We can view the atonement as an act of reconciliation. There's a rich tapestry of language. Uh, We can view the atonement as an act of victory, uh, of the the kingly work of Christ, uh, restoring... Uh, restoring creation and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and victory over the forces of darkness and the devil and and so on so on there's a rich tapestry but that's hardly an objection is the the fact that uh, the fact that there are other pictures in the bible that view atonement doesn't make the view of substitution inherently wrong. It just means that substitution is part and parcel of that rich tapestry of atonement language in the Bible. Actually, I would argue that all of the other views, uh, all of the other aspects of the atonement can only actually function because of substitution. Without substitution, those other facets, that rich tapestry actually falls apart another objection is that penal substitution is not central to the bible's doctrine of atonement Uh, penal substitution is not central to the bible's doctrine uh, of the atonement and uh, in a sense I'm saying here in a sense uh, that is true in in that there are other models uh, in the bible satisfaction victory reconciliation and so on Um, But, uh, and and some have uh, made the objection uh, that substitution uh, is something that was invented uh, by John Calvin in the 16th century and uh, one uh, one particular Paul uh, Fidders uh, makes that that allegation. Uh, Penal substitution then is not central or penal substitution is not the only model for atonement. Another objection to substitution is that penal substitution diminishes the significance of Jesus' life and resurrection. You know, it focuses on the death of Jesus and focuses on the cross of Jesus, but there's more to Jesus than just his cross uh, there's his life, there's, uh, there's Bethlehem as well as Calvary, there's, uh, there's uh, Nazareth as well as, well as Calvary, there's the, there's the empty tomb as well as Calvary. And uh, I was trying to think about this this morning and I thought it's a bit like visiting a restaurant and if you comment that the food was great but, you, you know, uh, you, you're, you're missing the point. Uh, if, if, uh, if, uh, if you say, well, you know, there, there's, there's the hors d'oeuvre and there's the dessert, uh, uh, but but uh, uh, those, those, those two are ju- those two are certainly aspects uh, those two are certainly aspects of the, of the, of the meal um, but uh, there 's there's, there's more to it than just than just the hors d'oeuvre or the dessert. Um, maybe that illustration made more sense to me this morning when I was thinking of it than it does now um, but but no one is denying, and certainly certainly uh, certainly. Uh, When we talk about the substitutionary nature of of the work of Christ, we're not simply talking about the substitutionary nature uh, of of Calvary and of what he did on the cross. But the whole of Jesus' life uh, from beginning to end was an act of substitution. He obeyed in my room and in my stead. Uh, another objection is that penal substitution makes no sense in a modern culture. And perhaps this is a, this is a, more, uh, a more telling and in one sense a more forceful objection. Uh, there are folk, for example, who, who say uh, that the concept of sin, uh, sin in the Johannine sense, well, how does John define sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. Right? There are other ways in the Bible of talking about sin. Sin is... Uh, Sin is a dislocation of fellowship. Uh, sin, sin, sin is uh, is disharmony. Sin is is iniquity, which means falling short of. Well, we we we, we all understand the idea of falling short. You know, I'm, I'm, I, we're always trying to stretch a little further, so we never quite reach the mark of our own of our own desires and potential, let alone other people's and let alone God's. That concept. I'm saying that concept is understandable in modern society but the concept uh, in modern society of breaking the law and of consequences for breaking the law is perhaps less and less relevant in our modern society that has little place for law. Uh, Law is just uh, do no harm to someone else or something like that. Uh, Law is, uh, is, is, is often very subjectively defined. And therefore... Uh, The the implication is uh, that preachers and Sunday school teachers shouldn't talk about sin because society has no concept of sin. That's the argument. And the argument here is that in a modern society, the idea of substitution just doesn't make sense. So so here's a a typical uh, statement. Calvin assumes that when law is broken, punishment must always be inflicted. As a matter of fact, this no longer seems as self evident to us today as it did in past ages. Wow, really? I mean, really? You know, you t- turn on CNN tonight. Uh, I mean, just do it. Just for, just for 10 seconds, hold your breath. Just, just hold your breath, and, and what are they going to be talking about? You know, they may be talking about Poland, and they may be talking about, uh, about uh, the Crimea, and they may be talking about Russia, but, but probably they're going to be talking about uh, the, the athlete in South Africa and the, and the trial. Because, uh, because a wrong was done, and they want justice. They want to see justice being done. Uh, our, our society understands all too well that if you, uh, if you commit an act of murder, there are going to be consequences. So what is all this talk that uh, modern culture just doesn't understand, uh, doesn't understand transgression of law uh, and and punishment and so on? Uh, I think what it says uh, to us is uh, we need to be faithful in in teaching and preaching the idea of substitution. Because uh, without substitution there is actually no, uh, no prospect for salvation. Uh, Here's another objection, the violence involved in penal substitution amounts to cosmic child abuse. And perhaps that's the most loud, uh, and in some senses, um, trenchant uh, objection that is being voiced today. You know, to those who have experienced abuse in childhood who've been abused by relatives, Uh, sexually abused. Uh, The idea here of a theory of the atonement in which the father is punishing his son for something he didn't do. It's very powerful. It speaks at at an emotional and and psychological and uh, counseling level. Uh, You can understand somebody who's uh, very sensitive about... uh, about a, a, a father figure who has abused them. Uh, and here we are trying to, trying to speak about the gospel in terms of a father punishing his son. Uh, here's, a, here's a statement from Green and Baker again. Uh, how have we come to believe that at the cross this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? The fact is the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Uh, this is coming from those who, who are objecting to the very concept of substitution as, as cosmic ch- child abuse. And so the accusation is that uh, the evangelical, uh, reformed, conservative, biblical uh, doctrine of the cross here has at its very core uh, a depiction of a violent... Uh, core to the very being of God is violent, and that speaks very loudly in our society. Right. So I think here, I think here we have to be very, very, very careful in how we how we state this. And, and let me say it again: that the wrath of God is not um, is, is not. Uh, fitful anger or or fitful rage or something that is out of control. Uh, The wrath of God is the reflex of holiness towards sin. It's the idea and concept of justice, that justice needs to be done and needs to be seen to be done. At the heart of the biblical doctrine of the cross is the fact that that at the point at which Jesus experienced the wrath of God for sin, it was precisely what he deserved. God could do no other. As God can do no other with unatoned for sin. I mean, apart from substitution, you have to answer for your own sins. Now we can lower the bar and say, "Well, sin doesn't deserve that kind of response." Right? That's another issue. Or we can lower the bar and say, "God n- never responds to sin in that fashion." Right? We can, so we can we can we can we can do those two things. But if we maintain if we maintain a biblical view of God and a biblical view of sin, only substitution will get us to salvation and redemption Uh, so the hymn that we sang uh, the hymn that we sang earlier that we may not know we cannot tell what pains he had to bear but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there but he suffered so that we need not suffer Uh, He took all of the consequences of sin so that we may never have to take the consequences of sin. That our sins have been wholly and completely and absolutely wiped out. God reckons us to be law keepers. God reckons us to be covenant keepers. God reckons us as righteous as Jesus is righteous. That's the amazing thing. Uh, the objection to substitution is a very strong one, uh, and it appeals to something in our society uh, where even the exercise of law and jurisprudence is often viewed as something violent, where a concept, say, of a death penalty uh, and imagine how this plays out I mean we still have the death penalty here but imagine how this plays out say in countries in Europe where there is no death penalty or where the death penalty would be, would be viewed as something as, as an act of, of violence on the part of a state where increasingly uh, the concept of just war is regarded inherently as something that's violent and wrong uh, so, so the objection to substitution is very strong and very powerful. Uh, and the response to it is, 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 actually, is, is actually from several perspectives, because we have to uphold several things here. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, as well as the doctrine of the atonement. All, all of those hang or fall together, it seems to me. Right? And we cannot have a biblical doctrine of God and a biblical doctrine of sin without a biblical doctrine of substitution. Because the way the Bible portrays God and the way the Bible portrays sin, you can only get to salvation via substitution and and any other view is, is inadequate. We have to answer for our own sins. And if that's the case, we are of all men most miserable because there is no hope. He gave himself for me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We live in a society in a world increasingly hostile to the very way in which you have revealed yourself. We we are particularly sensitive this evening to those who have experienced perhaps abuse uh, and for whom some of these concepts and ideas have emotional consequences. But we thank you, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that what sin really deserves has been fully met in the Lord Jesus so that in him we need not fear any consequence for sin because the sin has been wholly covered by the blood of Christ. So help us as we further reflect and as we think about these words of Paul, he loved me and gave himself for me. In Jesus' name, amen.